Well, let's pray for God's help in understanding and applying those words. Please bow your head. Job chapter 23, Job says, I have treasured the words of God's mouth more than my daily bread. Heavenly Father, please make us like Job. Would we too treasure your word more than our daily food? Help us to find much in your word to treasure this morning. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Is it possible to have both peace and purpose at the same time? Can we experience peace and purpose simultaneously? It seems to me that our 21st century Western culture isn't very good at holding peace and purpose together. We tend to call a peaceful person laid back. But someone who's laid back doesn't sound like a person who gets a lot done. Then, on the other hand, we call purposeful people driven. But a person who's driven doesn't sound like someone who's very peaceful. So is it possible to hold those two things together, peace and purpose? Jesus says it is. In today's passage, the risen Jesus brings both joyful peace and empowered purpose to his disciples and what he offers to those first disciples he also offers to us. Let's begin with peace. Our first heading is joyful peace. Please look down to verse 19. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The verse begins, when it was evening on that day, meaning resurrection day, the first Easter Sunday. That morning, Peter and John had been told that Jesus' tomb was empty, and they had literally raced to the tomb to see its emptiness for themselves. Later that day, according to Luke's gospel, the risen Jesus appeared to Peter. But none of the other male disciples have seen a resurrection appearance yet. And there's a detail in verse 19 that tells us a lot about the disciples' state of mind. That evening, verse 19 says, The doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. The disciples are afraid of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem because with the help of the Romans, those leaders had captured and crucified Jesus. The disciples seemed to think they might be the next ones to be rounded up and crucified. So they've made sure the doors of their meeting place are securely locked. Well, there must have been some hope and faith, you would think, among those disciples after everything that's been going on that day. The empty tomb, the appearance to Peter... But John doesn't mention hope or faith. He only mentions fear. So when Jesus appears to them, he immediately calms their stormy hearts. The first word he says to them is peace. Peace be with you is a common greeting in the Middle East, but we can be sure Jesus really means what he's saying because he repeats it a couple of verses later in verse 21. There it is again. Peace 
be with you. Peace is sometimes thought of as getting away from it all. In the poem The Lake Isle of Innisfree the, uh, by the Irish poet W.B. Yeats, Yeats imagines himself building a small cabin on an island in the middle of a lake and living alone there, where the only sounds come from bees and crickets and songbirds and the water lapping on the shore. In the poem, Yeats says, and I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow. It's a very beautiful and charming poem, but the kind of peace Yeats is talking about in the poem is a get away from it all peace, a get away from other people kind of peace. And many of us can't have that kind of peace in this current world. The peace that Jesus offers is different. It's a peace that's available even in the midst of genuine danger. Those, do those doors are locked for a reason. And it's a peace that can be experienced alongside other people in the midst of all the hubbub of conversation and activity at the end of that very intense Easter Sunday. To understand the nature of this peace that Jesus offers, please look down to verse 20. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus is identifying himself. His nail-pierced hands and his spear-pierced side show that it's really him. But there's more to those still visible wounds than identification alone. They serve as a reminder of the meaning of Jesus' death. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, Jesus himself explained back in John chapter 3, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Moses lifted up a bronze snake in the desert by fixing it to a pole, and the Son of Man was lifted up when he was nailed to the cross. Those who believe in Jesus Christ crucified have eternal life because they no longer have to pay the penalty price for their sins. Jesus paid that price for everyone who trusts in him as he died. The peace Jesus lovingly offers is peace with God, a peace that continues forever. And if you're listening today as a non-Christian, you too could have that wonderful peace with God if you put your trust in Jesus. It's been said that peace in the Bible is not just the absence of strife, it's the presence of life. And that's a vitally important point to grasp. The peace we have with God isn't simply an end to hostilities between us and God. It's also the beginning of a life-giving relationship between us and God. Knowing God, being on friendly terms with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's life as it's meant to be lived, real life. We mustn't miss the note of joy in verse, in verse 20. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced 
when they saw the Lord. When we read that, we might be tempted to think to ourselves, well, of course they rejoiced. They had Jesus with them again. They thought he was dead forever. Now they can see he's alive. You can't expect me now to have that same joy, can you? But let's not treat this verse 20 joy as a one-time joy for those disciples. Peter was among those disciples in that locked room on the evening of Resurrection Sunday. He had the joy of seeing the risen Jesus with his own eyes. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says to Christians decades afterwards, Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy. In other words, we too can rejoice in the risen Lord Jesus, even though we don't see him, just as those first disciples rejoiced when Jesus appeared among them. Joyful peace is available to every believer. If you've known plenty of Christians in your life, I'm sure you can think of at least one or two who radiated joyful peace even when going through very difficult circumstances. I think of a friend who told me that he and his wife had gone through fertility tests and then been told that uh, it was extremely unlikely that they would ever have children. They were in their 20s. That was a very hard thing for them to hear. But my friend said to me, just after telling me that, he said to me with full sincerity, without in any way forcing out the words, he said, we've got the gospel. How can we despair? I'm sure you also can think of Christians who held on to joyful peace, even through severe trials. Their pain was real, but it didn't extinguish their joyful peace. It is possible to go through life without claiming good things that are available to you. And that can be true of Christians when it comes to the joyful peace Jesus offers. We need to recognize that it is available. And if we're conscious that we've been missing out on it, we should reach out to God and ask him to help us experience it once again. It may well be the case that during the pandemic, you have found that anxiety has been swamping your joy. That would be extremely understandable. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, 40%, of US adults developed symptoms of depression or anxiety during 2020, a massive increase on the numbers for the previous year. We've been living under pressure, the pressure of uncertainty to do with health, employment and finances. And we've also lost many of the social interactions that make life pleasant. It would be understandable if you feel joyful peace is a memory from a past life. Now, I don't want to add to anyone's anxiety by making you anxious about your lack of joyful peace. But I do want you to hear that with Jesus risen from the dead, joyful peace can be yours to experience. Perhaps you could make David's prayer in Psalm 51 your own prayer. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, he prays to God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Psalm 51 was written when David was sitting among the wreckage 
caused by his own sin. It was written after God used the prophet Nathan to convict David of sin following his adultery with Bathsheba. That sin led to the murder of Bathsheba's husband and the death of David and Bathsheba's first child. Yet even then, David didn't give up on joy. He reached out to God for it. He believed it was available. He prayed, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Perhaps like David, you're sitting among the wreckage caused by your own sin. If David can say to God, restore to me the joy of your salvation, so can you. We can have even more confidence than David when we pray that prayer because of the nail-scarred hands and spear-scarred side of Jesus. David had a sacrificial system that spoke promisingly of the forgiveness of sins. We have a sacrificed saviour who has actually provided the forgiveness of sins through his death. If you're sitting among the wreckage caused by your own sin, you have even better reasons than David for reaching out to God to claim the joyful peace that is available to you through Jesus. In recent weeks, my 11-month-old baby son Solomon has become somewhat obsessed with our ceiling fan. If it's switched off, he will stare at it, make an unhappy sound, point at it with his arm, and generally do everything within his power to get Betsy or me to put the fan on. So we have the fan on the whole time. (laughs) If he's been outside in the stroller, it is the first thing he looks at when we wheel him through the door. When he wakes up in the morning, it's the first thing he looks at. Once we've switched it on, he settles down immediately. He loves it when the fan is on. He knows we can make that happen and he won't rest until he gets that outcome. If he could speak, I think he'd say to us, guys, that wonderful twirly thing up there, it's not moving. Let's have it. It's good when it goes around and around. So let's have it. Well, Solly's attitude to the ceiling fan really should be our attitude towards the joyful peace God offers us through his risen son. It's available to us. Let's have it. Let's have that fullness of life. Well, it's time for us to move on to the second half of the sermon. Empowered purpose. Empowered purpose. W.B. Yeats thought longingly of life on the Lake Isle of Innisfree, surrounded by the sounds of nature. And there is a lot that's attractive about that vision of life. But Jesus does not want his people to retreat from the world. Instead, he gives us itchy feet. He sends us, not to a place of quiet retreat from the world, but out into the world, meaning the people of the world. Take a look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Just as Jesus was sent to the world to bring salvation, so we have now been sent to the world to continue that work. Now, sometimes when we read the New Testament, 
we need to be careful about applying things to believers in general that are actually said to certain people in particular. But this isn't one of those occasions. John describes the people Jesus is speaking to as the disciples in verse 19. If he had said the 12, then we might need to be more cautious before applying these words to ourselves because those 12 disciples minus Judas did have a unique role as Jesus' personally appointed apostles. But John doesn't say the 12 here and the Bible commentator Leon Morris says of verse 21, the indications are that the words are addressed to believers generally. So Jesus' words in that verse, verse 21, are highly relevant to all of us. They help us understand our purpose on planet Earth. Jesus is sending each one of us. His words should give all of us itchy feet this morning. One thing we need to notice and dwell on is the parallel in verse 21. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Well, that should channel our attention backwards in John's Gospel to find out what it meant for the Father to send his Son. The main thing God sent his Son to do is something we definitely can't do. Listen to John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You'll hear that sending word coming up in these famous verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That work of providing salvation is complete. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. As we saw earlier when we were thinking about the wounds in Jesus' hands and his side, the price for our sin has been fully and finally paid through Jesus' atoning death. We can't add to that atonement by any deeds of our own. That is not what we've been sent to do. But sometimes in John's Gospel, Jesus talks about the Father sending him, and he's not talking about providing atonement for sin. He's talking about something different. In John 4, for example, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. But if you look around at the if you look at the surrounding verses in John 4, Jesus isn't talking there about the work of providing atonement for sin. Instead, he's talking about the work of spreading the good news so that people can believe and be saved. Jesus says those words, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work just after speaking with a Samaritan woman about salvation and just before he speaks with the other Samaritans in her town about salvation, being saved. That is work that Jesus was sent to do that we can also do. And praise God, for 20 centuries, Christians have been doing that work. And yet the task is still unfinished. And so we should consider ourselves sent by Jesus to continue the work he started. That work of spreading the good news so that people can hear and believe and be saved. 
The task is still unfinished, so our feet should be itchy. But if you're anything like me, this task Jesus has sent you to do will seem very challenging. Telling non-Christian people about their need for salvation through Jesus can put us in tough spots. It's easy for us to imagine being misunderstood by the people we talk to. Or they might understand us perfectly and yet ridicule us for holding to beliefs that in their eyes are outdated and plain foolish. But I think the real fear of many Christians in New York City is that if we speak to our friends or co-workers about Jesus, they will actually listen to us very politely. They won't say anything rude in response. And yet, from that time on, they'll shut us out of the circle of approval and advancement that we want to be in and remain in. That's often our fear, isn't it, here in New York City when it comes to speaking about Jesus to those who don't yet follow him. But Jesus speaks to us in chapter 20, verse 21 of John's Gospel. And he says that just as the Father sent him, so he is sending us. That is our ultimate purpose in this world. It's to bring the life-giving message of salvation to those who don't yet know it. Whatever else we might want to achieve with our lives, surely it should come in second to the mission that Jesus has given us. Surely that mission, that sending should take first place. Now that will look different for each one of us, but I'm sure everyone here can think of non-Christian people in their lives, family members perhaps, uh, friends, co-workers, neighbours in your apartment building. We should think of ourselves as sent by Jesus to them with the word of God. Mission isn't just for people making contact with unreached Amazonian tribes, it is also for people like you and me here in New York City. Mission adds a thrilling quality to the most humdrum day. You never know when the opportunity might arise to share the words of eternal life with someone who doesn't yet believe them. Could it be time for you to recapture that sense of thrill in this ongoing global mission. It's worth saying that there is wisdom in waiting for the right opportunity to speak of Christ instead of just downloading the gospel in an uninvited way. In the meantime, by modelling Christian living to non-Christians, living in a godly way, we prepare the way for mission by attracting people to the Saviour we represent. But even when you're openly invited to say what you believe, in my experience, you will still need God-given courage at that time to speak of Jesus as the promised Saviour, crucified for our sake and risen from the dead. Take courage at those times. Even when they are eager to listen, you will still need courage to speak clearly. Speaking of Christ is what you were sent to do. 
another thing that is worth saying, I think, and encouraging and helpful for us is that we shouldn't think of mission as a purely individualistic thing. Yes, we may well get opportunities to share our faith on an individual basis, one individual to another, but mission is also something we do as a body, as a church. Good Shepherd gives away 10% of our budget every year, and most of that 10% goes towards mission. We also try to proclaim the gospel every Sunday here at church, so whatever you do to keep Good Shepherd going is an act of mission. Simply attending a gospel-preaching local church is an act of mission. Now, on days when we're not in contact with non-Christians, and during a pandemic, I think it's fair to say that that might be most days for many of us. On those days, we can still pray for God's people to carry out the task Jesus has sent us to do. There are excellent resources on offer for those who want to pray for mission. You can find some of them on the recommended links page of our church website. Prayer is an essential component of mission because prayer is how we call on the powerful help of God's Holy Spirit. And there's no activity more closely associated with God's Spirit in the Bible than mission. It's no surprise to find Jesus here speaking about the Spirit immediately after commissioning his disciples. He doesn't want us to do the work of mission in our own strength. Please look down with me to verse 22. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows how greatly we need the Spirit for mission. Without the Spirit, mission would be like trying to fly a plane without wings. Only the Spirit can give life to those who are spiritually dead. And so Jesus tells his disciples that they must receive the Spirit. He knows that will happen seven weeks later on the day of Pentecost after he has himself ascended into heaven. That was when the disciples received the Spirit, and since then everyone who believes in Jesus receives the Spirit. Verse 22 helps us understand what it means to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Jesus is performing an acted parable, something prophets often do in the Bible, by breathing among his disciples, Jesus shows how closely the Spirit is associated with him. The Spirit is as closely associated with Jesus as his own breath. We haven't been sent out on mission in our own strength. We've been sent out with the power of Jesus himself because we have his Spirit dwelling within us. Some of us here today will have had the experience of telling someone about Jesus and wonderfully they believed and were saved. If you've had that experience, I'm sure you'll agree that it was the power of the Spirit working through you that led to that wonderful outcome. Whenever we seek to fulfill the mission Jesus has given us, we are not on our own. We have the Spirit. He can give people understanding as we explain the good news. He can soften people's hearts so that they receive it. We're not on our own. 
In the final verse of the passage, Jesus reduces mission to its core feature, the forgiveness of sins. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. When we fulfill our mission and share the good news, and by the power of the Spirit, someone believes it, what do we say to that person? We say, your sins are forgiven. Hallelujah. We say that every Sunday here at Good Shepherd through that uh, words of comfort part of the service that follows on from the prayer of confession. But if someone doesn't believe, well, we can't give them that assurance of forgiveness. We shouldn't give them that assurance of forgiveness. Instead, we explain that their sins are still theirs to pay for. That's what Jesus means in verse 23 when he talks about retaining people's sins. When someone doesn't believe the gospel, their sins are held in place instead of being removed from them. What a mission we have been entrusted with. When we participate in this mission, we are getting involved with the forgiveness of sins and the retaining of sins. This is a heavy responsibility, but we're not alone. We have the Spirit, we have one another. And there's no need for us to lose our joyful peace as we do what Jesus has sent us to do. The joyful peace Jesus gained for us through his death can still be ours through the stress and strain of mission. The risen Jesus gives his disciples both joyful peace and empowered purpose. We don't need to trade out one to have the other. We can have both. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we think of that image in our first Bible reading this morning. Life being given to dead bones through the breath of the Spirit. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that your Spirit would empower us to fulfill the task we have been sent to do. Would your Spirit give us strength? And we pray that your Spirit would work through our words to give life to those who are currently dead in their transgressions. Use us for this glorious task, we pray. And we ask, Father, that we would not lose our joyful peace along the way. Would we claim it from you and enjoy it? And we pray that you would help us to hold on to it. For Jesus' sake. Amen.